wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Thanks for listening. Find Bleeding Daylight social media channels by following the links at bleedingdaylight.net. Please share Bleeding Daylight episodes so that others can kick against the darkness. Today's guest spends much of his time equipping men to be all they can be. During our conversation, we'll tell you how to get a free copy of his new book, which tells about his own journey towards empowered manhood. I know you'll enjoy meeting him. What is a National Relationship Generator? We're going to find out very soon because we'll be speaking with Mike Hatch. And that's the role he fills with an organisation called CLC, or Christ-Led Communities. In a time of uncertainty and confusion, CLC focuses on helping men become who they were created to be. It's my pleasure to welcome Mike to Bleeding Daylight today. Thanks for your time. Rodney, man, it is great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I know you wear a number of hats, and I'm hoping we'll explore a number of those hats today. I want to start with CLC and ask that obvious question. What is a national relationship generator? <laughs> you know, Rodney, it's funny. This is, uh, if, if I could give myself a, a job title for my purpose in life, I mean, this would be it. It is like, I love relationships. I love people. I love building relationships with people. And uh, that, that's really been a mantra of my entire life, honestly. So basically, my, my role with CLC is to uh, is primarily introduce pastors and churches and various organizations, um, even outside of churches, about resources that CLC provides. So CLC is a men's ministry that focuses on men's relational discipleship. It's based out of Nashville, Tennessee. It's impacted about... Uh, well, over 10,000 men around the United States and been around for 40 years, almost 40 years, I think 38, 39 years, and uh, has just had a tremendous impact on, on men's lives through their curriculum. And we've got four tracks of curriculum now that are available for churches to utilize. Part of my own story, CLC played a role in it early on in my faith, my faith development. And so it, it's just a privilege to serve now as in this role. You know, the truth is 80% of churches around the United States do not have any intentional ministry toward or for men, which is, which is amazing to me. You see a lot of churches that have ministries for women or gatherings of women or fellowships of women, but very few uh, for men, if any. It does seem to be a very confusing time for men. The times are changing, and I think a lot of men are confused as to what role they're supposed to be taking in society today. Does CLC actually speak into that space? Yes, definitely. And that's exactly, you hit it on the head. We've been disempowered from our purpose that God has called us to in our vocations, in leading our families and parenting. In, in our friendships and relationships. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that we've we've been so isolated. I've heard it described before that we men are drowning in a sea of shallow acquaintances, but lack those deep, meaningful relationships where, where we really find true meaning and purpose in our lives. And that's why God created us to be in relationship. And so one of the first things I would say that, that separates CLC from any other curriculum 
that I've seen, and I and I've I served as a men's pastor at a church, and so I know what it's like to try to find the right curriculum for your your men's ministry or Bible studies or whatever. CLC is very relationally driven. Either any one of the curriculum, you start out with uh, what we call a fence post story. And that's where you think of a fence post along a property and you've got, yeah, fence with posts, of course. And each post represents a significant moment in life with regard to relationships and experiences, good, bad, or indifferent. The whole thing starts with men filling out kind of a, a worksheet, basically, that we provide that helps them think through how to verbalize their story and understand the things that happen in their life that made them who they are, you know, as, as they begin this journey in a CLC group. And as these different men come together, the first meeting, which is usually an overnight meeting, they end up sharing their fence post stories with each other. And that actually starts the meeting. And it is an incredible, incredible experience for men because they haven't heard. And and this is the one thing that's huge for men. Men, it's it's hard for us to pull things out from our hearts and, and to be able to verbalize it. You know, my wife used to be <laughs> frustrated with me. She's Italian and she is uh, very verbal. <laughs> and, and I love that about her. She's amazing. But early on in our marriage, I remember she'd get so upset with me because she'd be angry about something, but I, and, and I would shut down because I didn't know how to communicate or verbalize what was going on inside of me to, to help her understand. And that would even make her even more enthusiastic in her verbal <laughs> her verbal um, <laughs> communication to me. And uh, she'd get upset, say something, Mike, say something. And I couldn't say anything because I, I didn't know how to verbalize. I didn't know how to put it into a language. And a lot of men are struggling with that. You get this process that you begin to, to work through to verbalize your story. Then you hear other men tell their story, which the language they use, which is often different from yours in some ways, helps inform your story. It's just life transforming. Uh, and, and you start from this incredible depth of connection with other men as you, as you walk through scripture. But it all starts with that relational piece. And that's one of the things that is CLC's bread and butter, because after CLC groups end, often the relationships last a lifetime. Within that context of relationship, all sorts of different issues that men struggle with, whether it be how they interact and, and represent the gospel and, and have a redemptive impact in their work and vocation. What does it look like to lead your family? You know, a lot of men feel very inadequate with that and, uh, and feel very inadequate in their relationship with, with their wife or feel incompetent. I've heard men say that over and over again, how incompetent they feel. And you work through a lot of those issues that men deeply struggle with as you work through the curriculum, but all within that relational context. So yes, it definitely speaks to the issues men face today. I know that CLC is based around that small group, as you've mentioned, and about relationship. I find that interesting because any of us that have been around church circles for any length of time have been a part of a home group or a small group where suddenly a bunch of people that don't know each other that well are thrown into a group and suddenly we're expected to tell our deepest, darkest secrets. And and I know that sometimes women, they have this gift, they're able to do that a little bit better than we are, but, but for guys, it's so hard. How do you overcome that in a group? Is it really those those fence post stories that actually start it and spark it in others to build relationship? I think yes, number one. The fence post stories play a huge role in that. The other thing, though, we do encourage with men who are starting groups is that you don't necessarily need to start with complete strangers. Often these groups will form with men who have 
with relationships that men have, even at, even loosely within the church to begin with. So you're, they're not complete strangers. Now, sometimes men are more isolated than others, and they do come in feeling much much more like the, these other men are strangers. But the the other key to to the group is up front, you set the expectation that this meeting space, wherever we are, if we're in a church, we're in a basement of someone's home, we're in an office space, wherever we are, it's a safe space. And it needs to be kind of a container in a sense that where what's said here stays here. It's really on, on the leaders who lead the groups who've primarily been through a group themselves and experienced the life-changing impact of being vulnerable with other guys who lead in that vulnerability. Most men will follow if there's someone leading in that vulnerability. I think it's a combination of the fence post story, a combination of the environment that's set, that's supposed to be a safe environment. Nothing is is uh, is talked about outside of that or shared with Spouses, it's kept in that container, if you will. And then the example or modeling that the leaders do of that vulnerability, most men will follow that. I know that you're actually taking this curriculum to so many different churches to put it in front of so many different men, but I take it that you are also involved in some of those groups as you start to set them up. And you must see many times that flicker of light go in someone's eyes when it's like, ah, I'm not the only one. You too. Yes. Oh, man. Rodney, those are magical moments. Really, those are incredible moments. So first of all, I experienced myself. I am a recovering pornography addict who uh, who nearly destroyed my marriage before it started. Basically, my wife walked in on me while I was on the computer. Everything exploded. Our, our lives it was, felt like someone threw a grenade. It, well, that person would be me, basically. I'd never seen the impact of, of that addiction on someone else up to that point. It was all in isolation. As we work through that together, and by the way, praise God, my wife and I have been married for 17 years now. The 12-year-old son, God has been so faithful to us in this journey. It's been painful, but at the same time, incredibly freeing and joy-giving, <laughs> and, and it's really deepened our marriage as a result. So praise God for that. But one of the first places I my pastor at the time put me was into a CLC group that had just started. That was the first time I'd ever been introduced to other men who shared so openly and were so vulnerable. I had not experienced that before. I had been searching for it. Man, I'd been looking for it for so long and could not find a connection with men that was at that level. And so that was like a, a cold drink of water in a, in a hot desert. As I began to gain confidence in this safety of that environment and these other guys sharing, I know for me, it, it gave me the confidence to share because like you said, someone shares something and I, and I hear them say that, you realize you're not alone. <laughs> you're not alone, that there's someone else who has experienced something very similar or struggles with something very similar. Man, does that open up dialogue. It opens your heart in a sense to each other, basically. And so, yeah, it is, for, first of all, sparked in me. And that was a big part of my own recovery from pornography was that I learned that walking in the light, first John chapter one talks about this idea of walking in the light versus walking in the darkness. And if you're walking in darkness, that you are lying to yourself, you're making God out to be a liar. We do this, we, we live this duplicitous life. And that's exactly what I was doing before my pornography addiction was found out. God kind of pushed me into the light where suddenly Everything that I had been hiding and was most ashamed of was revealed for everybody to see, our church, our pastors, friends, 
family members. It was incredibly shameful on one hand, yet as I experienced the love of God through the people of our church, through God's word, through this group and understanding my identity in Christ as a result of what Christ did for me, I experienced God's grace. And that was life transforming. And I think that's what most men today are missing. Most men today are missing that place to go where they can be completely open and real and honest and vulnerable and experience God's grace in the midst of that because it's it's risky. And we're often taught as men that we're not supposed to be weak. We can't show our vulnerabilities, especially in some of the cutthroat <laughs> contexts we find ourselves in in business, in the corporate world, maybe. You know, it's a dog eat dog world, you know, so you've got to figure out how to navigate it usually with masks on of some sort, trying to figure out how to gain success and approval from others, which you think, and this was me, I thought that that would bring me life and purpose. Seeing those lights turn on, and yes, I've led groups as well. It's so funny. There's a couple guys that come to my mind. One is, his name is Tony. He grew up in a Catholic background and just had a very legalistic perspective. Like I have to do these things. I have to accomplish these tasks check the check boxes uh, in order for God to approve of me, basically. And I, I'll never forget after a group meeting, he came to me and he said, he said, I, like, this is amazing. He's like, he said, you know, so I can't do anything to earn God's approval. And I said, yeah, that's right. You're already approved by God because of what Christ did for you. And he just stood there absolutely perplexed about this because his whole life he'd been working to gain God's approval. And then for the first time realized through this, you know, the vulnerability of the group and and the sharing that happened and learning from God's word, really reading it and taking it in and processing it for the first time because he had been reading scripture or hearing scripture in isolation and not within the, the context of relationships. And God really spoke to his heart and gripped him about the fact that it was by God's grace he was saved. <laughs> there was nothing he could do to earn it. And he almost looked lost for a moment, for a time. He just didn't know kind of what to do with that. It was a new truth or reality for him. Watching those lights turn on, Rodney, is is amazing. I'm interested there, you're talking about this whole idea that we can't do anything to earn God's favor. We can't do anything to earn his approval. That seems to go so much against the grain of what most men are told they should be, that you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you have to earn your living, you have to earn the trust of everyone around. And men's whole life is based on having to earn. Do you think that that makes it difficult for some men to to grasp hold of, of what's there written in the Bible? Definitely. Yes. And it's been known and well-documented for many years now that women far outnumber men in attending church. I've thought a lot about that as I've worked with men and and even just recently done some writing and thinking about it. And men, in, in order to, to attend church, you have to come to a place where you where you realize that what you're doing or what you're trying to accomplish or how you're trying to get there is not enough. You need something. You have an inability to earn it yourself to some extent. Now, I realize some people come to church as, you know, their checkbox and they think by going to church, attending churches is how they're going to earn God's approval. But by and large, in order to go to church, you have to at some level say, okay, I need to submit to a to God. I need to f- look into this and, and figure out 
why I am deficient in, in, in ways that I can't explain and can't figure out. Women are, as you mentioned earlier, are much more willing and likely to do that. Partially, I think, because they have been such a, uh, maybe an exploited people group, maybe, gender throughout history. And I think maybe, and this is my own theory, so people can push back on this if they want. You know, women are, are more desperate and ready to admit their their weakness and, and vulnerability in that area and, and seek God to be the one that provides for them. Men, like you said, are so self-sufficient. We think we're self-sufficient. We try to be self-sufficient. And church doesn't enter into that equation. Most men, as I've been a pastor um, and, and ministered to men for 20 years now, most men <laughs> if they're coming to church with their family, they've often been coerced by their wife to do so. <laughs> often that's the case. And then as they're there, they I think many times they they discover their need and realize that they're that they're not enough and that their attempts aren't going to earn them uh, the approval of God like they like they had thought. We act self-sufficient. We try to be self-sufficient. And then as a result, often you get these one of two extremes. Either you're really good at checking those boxes and gaining people's approval and performing to where you you get very prideful. And and pride becomes a struggle. And often people aren't, they don't know consciously often that they might be struggling with pride, but that leads to pride. Or you you're trying so hard and you're failing and you're not able to make it. And you're not able to achieve that standard that you have in your head and you, you fall into despair or depression. I think men are on often on both sides of those spectrums because they're so performance oriented. Because I was the same way, man. I, I grew up an athlete. I loved, I, I, was, I was naturally athletic, not a superstar athlete, but I was, you know, I was athletic enough to, you know, to run track at a, at a division one school, for example. And I loved being able to do that. It was something I was very natural at. It was something that I gained people's approval from because I performed well, very naturally. And, uh, and I found my identity in that. And then once I hit uh, a certain level in college, for example, where I couldn't perform in a sense to, to reach the standard that was demanded of me there to really exceed expectations and perform well, there was an identity crisis big time for me. I had to reconsider who I was. Was I no longer Mike the athlete who I expected, you know, to end up in the Olympics. I expected to be in the NFL. You know, those are my kind of expectations as unrealistic as they might seem. That was what I was thinking. And when I fell short, it and and I think a lot of men struggle with that. They struggle with falling short of what their expectations were and then or that they, that they are doing so well that they struggle with pride. Either side actually is pride because, again, it's self-sufficiency. And God has called us to the opposite of self-sufficient. We are dead in our sins. And for most men, it takes, like it did for me, hitting a rock bottom. Either you're knocked off that pedestal of pride, you fall hard, and you realize, I'm not who I thought I was. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you know, you hit rock bottom there in a similar way where you can't achieve those those goals or expectations you thought. And so you end up in depression and, and often hopelessness before you come to a realization that I have to reach out and I have to trust God versus myself. But that's extremely hard for men, yes. The way that you're talking, there's a whole range of issues that men are struggling with. And I'm wondering 
about the the role that men have in being a father because you you've touched on men feeling insufficient as as husbands or as just being a man in society but then it comes to parenting and that adds another layer because most of us know our own darkness and we just don't want that visited upon our kids i'm wondering specifically even for you having a 12 year old son are there things there that you think oh i've i've got to pass this on to my boy I, I've got to make sure he doesn't fall in the same places that I did. Oh man, definitely, definitely. And that's a struggle for men because often we haven't had positive male role models in our lives, maybe not a positive experience with our father that leaves us feeling inadequate in parenting. And I used to say that my wife and I talk about this. We used to be so confident about parenting before we had kids. <laughs> then, then we had kids <laughs> and then we had a son. <laughs> And it's like, wait a second, what happened to all that, com- <laughs> that confidence? You know, you have your plan until uh, until the battle starts in a sense and uh, all your plans get thrown out the window. Your children are yours. And there's, this, there's a whole other level of responsibility you feel as, as a father when your son is born. And you just don't expect that light switch to be flicked on like God does when your child is born. And, and all of a sudden, you f- you feel these things for your child that you haven't even met yet. I mean, you just met your child <laughs> having been born. So men battle with that because we often we haven't had a good role model or a good uh, framework of understanding our own process or story. And we haven't had someone to guide us along. And so then we look at our child. We feel this weight of responsibility. We don't know the road. We, we don't necessarily understand how to, how to lead them in, in maybe a, in what we might say would be a, a better way forward than we were, than we took when we were kids. And so often that, that paralyzes us and some men will, will abandon ship, honestly. And that, that's really sad, but that, that will happen. Other men grope in the darkness, trying to figure it out, but unfortunately doing damage in the process. But I think a couple things. Number one, I don't think there's anything more significant in parenting than your own dependence on Christ uh, for his grace. Coming to the end of yourself, first of all, understanding that you are a sinner, that you are broken, that you don't have any hope outside of Christ, but that Christ provided a way for you through his death and resurrection to make you alive again, a new creation and living in that and and, and entrusting yourself to that. I think, first of all, that is the most significant thing in parenting because your son or your daughter will look to you as the father. And this is psychologically, I know there've been studies done about this. And typically kids will look to their father as being the model of what they perceive God to be. And so we have this interesting, heavy responsibility, yet at the same time as fathers, this is this is the cool part, I think, about what God does. We have a super power as fathers. And I don't think men get this sometimes because we're so overwhelmed by our own inadequacies. The littlest things you do, the smallest things you do can have exponential impact on your children. Just having a brief conversation and a moment of encouragement to your child at the dinner table, that can have huge implications moving forward. I mean, think about your own experience with your father and the little things that he said to you that meant so much more, either for good or for ill. And it wasn't a big deal, but it meant something very deeply to you. 
So I think we underestimate the power we do have, the superpower, I would call it, as a father to uh, to speak into or, or model for our kids or our influence on them is, is substantial. And so part of it is realizing that knowing that in that, what is most significant is not your ability to teach them, pour information into them, but the most significant thing that's going to influence your kids is your dependence on God. <laughs> maybe it's you're in a tough situation at work and you sit down at the dinner table together, or maybe you're at, at night before bed and you just decide to pray in front of your children with your children in an appropriate way and just say, God, you know that I'm having this issue at work. I'm struggling. I really need your help with it, Father. Only you can uh, provide in this area. Thank you, Father, for the ways that you have provided for me. And uh, and just, but, but to express that dependency on God in every moment is huge for our kids. Huge. I think the first thing we need to understand as men is just simply our dependency on God. That can be different things that can be attending church. And, uh, you know, my son has asked me before, why do we attend church every weekend? Well, because like I'm utterly desperately dependent on God's word. In Philippians 2.13, it says, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So I'm desperately dependent on God to change my heart in certain ways so that I would desire the things he desires and that I would obey uh, what, what he calls me to obey. It's not about solving some super complicated math equation. It really is as simple as falling on to, to the feet of Jesus in desperate dependence on him. I know that most of the issues that all of us face come down to a cry or or a need for something, and then the way that we try and fulfill that need takes us down the wrong track. So I want to come back. You mentioned earlier that you broke free from this porn addiction. I'm wondering, what was that deep need in you that drove you to that kind of an addiction? Yeah, I'm grateful for that question. So I will say this, the first um, gift I received from my parents was an understanding of who God was and who Jesus was in relation to God and in relation to me. I could interact with God. I could have a relationship with him. I could, I could access him. I could pray to God. That was huge, huge in my life. And so I, I want to preface all that I'm going to f- say following that <laughs> with that, that I'm grateful for my parents' influence in that way. That being said, I also grew up in a very unhealthy family in some ways that eventually led to my parents' divorce. My father was was a very big personality. He was a radio and TV talk show host, very prominent in uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for a while. So I, I remember going out and people recognizing him or recognizing his voice. I remember going to the radio studio and spending time with him there and, and just seeing how much influence he had over people and uh, just this big personality. My uncle was a vice president of mobile oil in charge of the Asian quarter of the globe, just killing it in business. And, uh, and my grandfather was a rags to riches story in, uh, in the Ohio Valley coal mining industry and played a huge role in improving mine safety. And everybody knew him in our community. Everybody knew him and loved he and my grandma for the influence they had on their families. So I grew up with these huge, big male personalities, very successful male personalities. And I just, I felt a, a real <laughs> burden or, or need to measure up, to be as, I guess, successful 
as they were, to gain the notoriety that they did. There was a pressure that I put on myself based on my perception of them. Uh, Unfortunately, I was um, sexually abused by a babysitter uh, at one point in time. And that that really messed up the wires in my head in in a sense to where I, I began to look at women differently. I didn't see them as much as people. I saw them as objects. And unfortunately, that just planted a seed that grew in me over time until I started finding my mom's, you know, magazines, just swimsuit magazines, Victoria's Secret magazines, that kind of thing. That was, this is before the internet. And so all that pressure, and this is the other thing, I, what I felt growing up, I was always called, oh gosh, two things that would drive me nuts. I was described as a procrastinator. People would tell me I was a procrastinator over and over again, especially my parents. And I would hear from teachers and coaches from school that, uh, Mike, you have so much potential. You just have to live up to that potential. I'll be honest, I heard that over and over again. And I know those folks were, were trying to encourage me, but it really felt like it was more of an indication to me of how far short I was falling, what a, what a failure I actually was. I lived a lot of my life in fear as a result of that. So my procrastination was more out of a fear of getting it wrong or not being good enough. And so I, I would be paralyzed and I couldn't, I couldn't move forward. All that to be said, my family, I was also the firstborn in my family. So I've had a feeling like I needed to hold things together as my parents' marriage was, was disintegrating. I was the oldest of three, three kids. I have a younger brother and younger sister that weighed heavy on me as well. And so all that kind of culminated in me, I think, trying to find a, a, an escape route <laughs> or, or a relief valve. Pornography ended up becoming that for me. It became the way that uh, I think a previous guest on your show, Rodney, mentioned this similar, and, and I resonated with uh, with his description of it. it, became the way that I medicated the pain, the ache that I had inside of me. It was my escape, escape from realities in life that I did not have the emotional tools to deal with because I had been emotionally stunted in some ways because of the drama and the uh, and the trauma in my life and family. And so that led me into that addiction, which then you just, you end up in that shame cycle. I was a Christian, very involved in youth group, even leading in youth group and leading a ministry in college. Yet at the same time, I had this dark side. I was living this duplicitous life. I was, I was living in the dark, but claiming to be walking in relationship with God when I was not living out the truth. That led to shame, feeling more pressure for not measuring up, which drove me to pornography again, which then led to shame. <laughs> in, in the moment, you know, you have the release, you have the, the, the feeling of the adrenaline rush, and you forget about it, all the pressures for that moment, but it just comes flooding back. And so that's really where it came from for me it was that pressure and performance mentality that I had. You know, my identity was equal to my performance plus other people's opinions of me. There's a strange paradox going on there, and I'm sure it didn't feel like a good thing at the time, but the thing that you were trying to hide the most actually became the thing that set you free when it came out into the open. It's a, it's a strange paradox, and, and yet so often we <laughs> yeah. keep trying to hide things, and that's the issue. We're hiding something that if it did come out into the light, and we know it's just going to destroy us, and we find a hang on. I'm not destroyed. In fact, I'm moving forward. That's, oh, Rodney, that is a, such a, 
a profound truth. And you're right, it is a paradox that, that we live in as men. Again, this is where I come back to this idea of empowered manhood versus disempowered manhood. You know, we're so afraid to be found out, afraid to be vulnerable, afraid to bring these things into the light. Yet that's the very thing that God has called us to that will free us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this was life-changing for me in some ways and understanding the role of the Holy Spirit. So Paul describes the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He talks about how the, the wisdom that he's teaching with is wisdom from the Spirit, not of the world. And then he goes on to describe what the Holy Spirit is. And he compares the Holy Spirit with the spirit of a man. Just like the spirit of a man knows everything going on inside of a man, the Holy Spirit knows everything that goes on inside of God. And we've been given the Holy Spirit so that we have a, a as Christians, to have access to, to everything that God is and, who, and what he has to offer for us. And this is an incredible, mind-blowing concept. You know, when I was in, in youth ministry, one of the things we used to, to talk about to, uh, to help students understand the weight of their own sin, you ask the question, so if, if you could have everything you've thought about, everything that you've done in your life that maybe not anybody really knows about, and it was to be projected on a big screen for everybody to watch in the theater, anybody could come watch, you know, Mike's. Mike's inner thoughts, deepest subconscious motivations, and the actions that came out of it. You can watch the whole thing. Come on and, and check it out. Oh my gosh, that, that would absolutely terrify you. And, and most people, it does. It's like, no way. I would not want anybody to see the things, the inner workings inside of me, because there's so much that, that I might be ashamed of. I would never want that to happen. I wouldn't want people to see the thoughts that I have on an everyday basis. And it typically would drive home the case for, for sin and the fact that we are really sinful and that, you know, a big difference between the way the world thinks and the way uh, what the Bible teaches us in the gospel is that you got to start from a place of, of, of what the Bible teaches being we are, we're sinful and hostile to God versus what the world says is, ah, you're not, you're not bad. You just had some unfortunate situations that led you down different roads and you just have to correct yourself and self-improve. Big difference there. And that, that illustration would often help to, to bring that to bear for people and help them understand that. Well, what Paul is saying in that, in that first Corinthians passage there in equating man's spirit to the Holy Spirit, he's, he's saying, look, just like your spirit knows everything about you, just like your spirit searches your inner motives and, and subconscious ways of operating even, God has a spirit similarly that does the same thing inside of God. So the fact that God has given us his spirit, has poured his spirit out to us, it, it's equivalent basically to us putting our, uh, all of our inner thoughts and stuff on a, on a screen for everybody to see. God has done that in a sense by, by giving us his Holy Spirit, by, by gifting us his Holy Spirit. He's given us access in the most intimate way possible to who he is, in the most intimate way possible throughout all of human history. He's a God who's present. He's a God who's with us. He was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. He shows up in a burning bush to Moses. He's, he's with the people of Israel in the, in the desert by a, a pillar of fire by night and, and a pillar of smoke by day. He fills the temple with smoke, indicating his presence. So he's wanting to be present, to reside with his people. 
And then he comes in the form of Jesus, the physical representation of God in the form of Jesus with flesh on to tabernacle with us or, or to, to camp with us or move into the neighborhood with us as one, I think maybe the message translation translates it that way. And now we have the most intimate expression of God's presence in the Holy Spirit inside of us. I know that I mentioned in the introduction that you wear a number of hats. I just want to touch on another one of those hats now, and maybe you can give us an understanding of what the podcast Blue Collar Money is all about. Yeah, kind of running these two lanes right now where, you know, obviously passionate about men and men's discipleship and and uh, and helping churches with that, of course. And that's my nine to five, man. That's that's my passion. But I do have another passion, my side gig, which is a podcast, Blue Collar Money, Theories of Middle Class Investing. During the 2007-2008 global financial crisis, I just woke up to some things and and decided to investigate and learn more. Basically, I just started questioning. So why why are mortgages bad? Like what what's going on with that? Why did they go bad? Why did banks lose money? Why are they failing? Why is the government coming in to bail them out? What is the Federal Reserve and what what role does it play? Other countries have centralized banks as well. Also, I looked at my own retirement fund and saw like I had lost fifty percent. I'm like, what is going on? I just started deciding to read more and learn more about this because I just didn't understand. And man, did it take me down a rabbit hole of learning about economics, biblical economics. I, I might, I might describe it as well because I was, I was learning in, in in scripture as well as extra extra biblical books as well. And I found some Christians who wrote about it. So I learned a lot about monetary history and monetary policy. I just noticed as a pastor some things going on in scripture and how it addressed some of these issues. I started seeing things in scripture that I'm like, man, why don't I ever hear anybody preach about this? I, I've never I've never seen this before. Nobody's ever taught me this. Along the way, I met a, a friend of mine, P.W. Gopal. He had been on the same track, learning and growing himself in the same way. And we realized that what's going on today in our world is not new. And the Bible is not silent <laughs> about it either. And there are ways, unfortunately, that the system is built that uh, that really exploits the vulnerable or the marginalized for the sake of the elite and, and the few at the top. Jesus speaks to this very clearly, actually. March 2020, when everything was, was going crazy with the pandemic, we've, we decided, okay, let's start a conversation through a podcast. I just want other people to be exposed to this as well, and maybe we'll attract some other people because we we hadn't met many people who were studying the same thing or knew about some of these uh, these truths that Scripture talked about. And so we started the podcast to start that discussion. PW comes from a uh, an investment background; he's steeped in uh, real estate investing. Was a uh, futures trader, has uh, started his own businesses and mentored other small business owners, entrepreneurs, and getting their businesses started, coming up with business plans. I came from a biblically steeped perspective where I was obviously trained as a pastor, seminary degree, all that kind of stuff. And so we brought those two things together. So our goal basically, and this is our tagline and mantra, is that we help everyday folks get financially unstuck by taking a blue-collar approach, rolling up our sleeves, getting our hands dirty, and accepting responsibility for our own financial future. And doing it all from a biblical worldview or Christian perspective. If people want to find Blue Collar Money, it's available wherever you 
normally listen to podcasts, we will put a link in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that you can track it down. Also, if people are wanting to get in touch with you, I know that specifically on the on the issue of pornography addiction, you have written an ebook and you can make that freely available. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, I would say, first of all, email me. Feel free to reach out to me via email at uh, mhatch at clchq.org. Yeah, the ebook, shoot me an email. I'd love to send it to you. It's uh, it's called Empowered Manhood, Rediscovering Courageous Masculinity in the Light of the Gospel. My life mission is is to walk in the light as he is in the light, God is in the light, in order to be a light for the glory of God. And uh, and that all stems from my own story, which I share in, in the ebook. I have some all sorts of resources and things for folks, for other men who are looking for empowered manhood and are tired of being disempowered by the dark. Email me. You can uh, go to clchq.org, especially if you're a pastor or you think a lot about men's discipleship in your church. I would love to talk to you and uh, and help you think through what men's discipleship looks like in your church and whether CLC can come alongside. There's no cost to churches for the program. You can obviously check out our our podcast, Blue Collar Money. And then um, I also have a website called empoweredmanhood.com. And uh, you can reach out to me through there. You can see some of my blog posts as well. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to talk about this, uh, some of this stuff with you if you're, if you're interested in hearing more. While you were talking, if people were furiously trying to write down all those contacts yeah. and missed any, as I say, I will put them in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that you can catch up with Mike. So many good resources there that are available. And Mike, I just want to say it's been a real wonderful time talking to you, talking through a whole range of issues, specifically a lot of the time dealing with men, but some issues that I'm sure that anyone can connect with. And I want to thank you for your time today on Bleeding Daylight. Yeah, Rodney, thank you so much. And man, do I admire what you're doing, man. I love I love what you're about. Uh, I think our, our hearts and missions align very well. And so I appreciate the opportunity to be on with you. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.